It's Wednesday, June 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. California Governor Gavin Newsom continues to face a recall vote, but the early momentum in getting the recall on the ballot has faded, and Republicans are having difficulties making some of the attacks stick. The state is scheduled to reopen June 15th, there's a budget surplus, and even polls look good for Newsom right now, with 57% opposing the recall. Carla Marinucci, senior writer for Politico's California Playbook, joins us for an update on the fight over Newsom's political future. Next, the housing market continues to be as crazy as ever, with low inventory and sky-high prices. But thousands of homes, known as whisper listings or pocket listings, are being reserved for certain buyers, and it's squeezing the supply even tighter. Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the dwindling options for home buyers. Finally, the conversation about COVID-19 variants is changing in the hopes of avoiding confusion and stigma. The WHO has announced a new naming scheme that uses the letters of the Greek alphabet instead of numbers or a country's name. The UK variant, known as B117, will now be Alpha, and the South African variant will be Beta. Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. On June 15th, all things being equal, we continue that good work. We'll have moved beyond that blueprint and we'll be opening up this economy at business as usual. Joining us now is Carla Marinucci, senior writer for Politico's California Playbook. Thanks for joining us, Carla. Hey, good to be with you. Wanted to get in an update on the recall effort for Governor Gavin Newsom in California. It seems that despite Republicans' best efforts, they haven't been able to nail him down just yet. The recall effort is a go. It will be happening. But, you know, things are changing in the state. The situation with COVID is getting better. Restaurants are reopening. I think June 15th is the big reopening for California. And things just aren't sticking as much. Uh, Homelessness is probably the biggest issue that they can nail him on. But, Carla, what are we seeing in this recall effort so far? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is that that Governor Newsom really seems to have the wind at his back right now. I mean, he's got the poll numbers in his favor with only 40 percent of California voters saying they support it. Uh, You've got the state bouncing back from the COVID situation. The budget surplus is unlike anything California has ever seen. He's claiming about a $76 billion surplus and then $27 billion in federal stimulus to boot. Uh, That means Newsom has been able to give away $600 checks uh, in that stimulus. And, uh, you know, on the COVID situation, he's now promising those $50 gift cards to anyone who gets a vaccine to the next 2 million Californians, and then a huge lottery coming in the middle of the month. So right right now, Republican candidates have tried to get traction against him. You've got one Republican candidate, John Cox, has even taken out a thousand pound bear with him on the campaign trail. (laughs) And Kevin Faulkner is trying with, you know, serious policy proposals, but it is hard to get traction against a governor who's got the advantage of the bully pulpit and is going around the state almost doing a victory lap with the with the COVID recovery. And, you know, that's really what kind of, you know, the recall effort was already set in motion, but that's the thing that really gave it some energy was business closures. And at that time, it was kind of a roller coaster. They were open, then they had to close back down, then they was kind of open in limited capacity. Yeah. That's the thing that really gave it energy. And now we're reopening the state. So that's a tough one to nail on uh, right there. 
Absolutely. And if you saw over the Memorial Day weekend, boy, things were packed out there. The parks were packed. The beaches were packed. There's no question that California is recovering from this COVID pandemic. And the governor is using that terminology, California roaring back as he's describing these new programs, the stimulus payments, the economic recovery. And it's showing, you know, as we said in his polls right now, the latest Public Policy Institute of California poll showed two thirds of California residents now say they back his handling of the pandemic. And you mentioned that's where this recall began is the anger, the frustration at those businesses closing down, at the schools closing down. Well, right now, most of California is behind Newsom and the way he's reopening up again. So how do the Republicans get traction here? That is the big issue, and it's going to be their challenge, especially if Democrats move up the date of the recall as is being talked about now. That gives Republicans even less time to make an argument against Gavin Newsom. You mentioned John Cox coming out there with that huge bear. Uh, you know, I live in California. That day I saw all the news. I was kind of laughing. It was it was kind of a funny stunt. Caitlin. Yeah, yeah well, I was face to face with the bear on the campaign trail. Let me tell you, it wasn't that funny because there was nothing separating the bear from the yeah. press corps. I wasn't sure which way that was going to go. Uh, you know, other candidates like Caitlyn Jenner, who was getting a lot of national coverage was interesting, but uh, really, I have not seen her do anything local, which is where you really need to be, because those are the people that are going to be voting. Yeah, 40 days into her campaign, we haven't seen a single press conference, a single public event. She's gone to the East Coast to do a couple of very short interviews. Mostly, she's selling uh, T-shirts and hats on her website. We haven't seen a lot of policy positions from her. So uh, she's going to have to, I think, uh, either come up with some really detailed positions very soon and do some state media, which she has done none of. Otherwise, I think uh, she's already considered sort of a a fourth-place contender in the polls, only at 6%. And I think Mary Carey, the porn star, is somewhere in that range as well. (laughs) What do supporters of the recall effort have to do? They need some energy in this. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the homeless issue in California, especially in Southern California, is so huge right now. That could be something to uh, pin Gavin Newsom on. What do they need for their effort? Yeah, right now, I mean, you do have some serious Republicans who are starting to focus on that. Kevin Kiley, an assemblyman from uh, the Sacramento area, is saying, look, You need to have somebody really go down the list of the governor's failures this year, particularly on taxation issues and other issues that have caused major businesses to leave this state. He believes, and other Republicans believe, that Newsom is vulnerable also on crime issues, law and order issues, defunding the police, some of the more uh, progressive Democrats calling for that. And many Republicans are saying that is an issue that is going to hit with voters. And you mentioned homelessness. It is still sort of at pandemic levels in a lot of uh, cities here in California. Oakland, Venice Beach is another area where people are complaining about this. On a rising scale, and the feeling is that Newsom has not done enough, at least Republicans are making that case, that that is an area also where he's vulnerable. So, yes, there are issues that resonate with not only Republicans, but independent voters here in California. And the cost of housing is another big one. That's another issue that's causing uh, some Californians to leave the state and go elsewhere. And Republicans are saying they have the opportunity to maybe bring along some of those independents and disgruntled Republicans and get them together. The bottom line is Republicans are much more energized to vote in this recall than Democrats are. 
and a uh, Berkeley uh, poll showed that 75% of Republicans have a high interest in the recall. That's more than double the share of Democrats. So Democrats are a little worried that they may not get the kind of turnout on this election. That's the Republican hope here, that they can turn out their voters and get across that 50 plus 1% of the vote that they need on that first question on the recall ballot, which is should Gavin Newsom be recalled? They want to get 50 plus 1%. If they do, then it's uh, Katie, bar the door. You've got already 63 candidates for governor out there. Carla Marinucci, senior writer at Politico's California Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thanks. What that also means is that a buyer who is looking for a house to buy and going on these websites every day trying to find new houses on the market might hear, oh, wow, this house that completely fits my criteria just sold. And I didn't even know it was for sale. I didn't even get a chance to look or to make an offer. Joining us now is Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Nicole, we've talked about how tight the housing market is right now. Home prices are at record highs. The demand is there where there's just not enough supply. And uh, in your one of your recent articles, you talked about how there's thousands of homes that are being reserved for certain buyers. Uh, sometimes people call them pocket listings, whisper listings, and they're not being put out on the market at large. You know, some of these agents and brokerages are kind of just giving the heads up to a select few people. And, you know, what that does is really tighten the supply even more. And if, even those for those people that are selling those homes, they might not be getting the highest prices that they could be getting. So, Nicole, tell us a little bit about it. So normally to buy or sell a home, the seller will list their house publicly. So they'll put it on multiple listing service, kind of a local database that has all of the house listings. And then from there, it will go on to, you know, Zillow, Redfin, Realtor.com, all of these websites so that any buyer can see the home. There will also be a for sale sign out front, lots of marketing. And the idea is to get, you know, as many buyers as possible who want to tour the home and make offers. And especially in this market, it is super competitive out there for buyers. Buyers are desperate to buy homes and there just aren't enough on the market. So any home that does go on the market these days is likely to sell very quickly and get multiple offers. But in some cases, brokerages are not putting listings on those public databases, but they're keeping them kind of in-house. It's called an office exclusive, also called a pocket listing, where a brokerage might have a house that they only market to other agents inside that brokerage. And there are various reasons that sellers might want to do this. It's a little bit more common in high-end markets. If a seller is, say, a celebrity or somebody who has a lot of privacy or safety concerns, they might not want all of these people touring their house. They might not want photos of their house on the internet. So sometimes sellers prefer these kind of more private listing options. And that means that the house is kind of only advertised within a certain brokerage. And so only clients of that brokerage get access to these listings. But what that also means is that a buyer who is looking for a house to buy and going on these websites every day trying to find new houses on the market might hear, oh, wow, this house that completely fits my criteria just sold. And I didn't even know it was for sale. I didn't even get a chance to look or to make an offer. Let's put some numbers to it because these pocket listings accounted for about 3% of sales on average for the past year that ended in March. 3% is not that much, but that's about 169,000 homes. That's a lot of homes. Right. So it is not, to be clear, the entirety of the inventory problem, right? There really is a shortage of houses and it is not 
only that if all of these houses were listed publicly, there would be enough houses. There is a long-standing shortage of homes, and this is just kind of one small corner of the market that is these houses that are being sold kind of more privately. But it does account, as you said, for about 3% of the market. So that's not a huge proportion, but it is up from the year before and the year before that. So it is kind of rising in this more competitive market. I guess it was uh, Freddie Mac estimated that the housing market is short nearly 4 million homes. That is a ton of homes that people are looking for right now. Absolutely. And so really the bigger issue is that for the past decade, home builders have not really kept up with long-term demand. And so there is this big deficit of houses that people are ready to buy that just haven't been built yet. So what is this all doing? I, you know, I, I mentioned also that you know, the home prices are at record highs right now. We kind of saw the first slowing of the pace of these purchases, but it's because house prices are so high and it's pushing some buyers out. Yeah, so definitely affordability is a growing problem right now in the market that house prices are being pushed to record highs because there's so many buyers competing for so few houses. And so buyers are just outbidding each other. And it's getting really difficult for first-time buyers, buyers at the lower end of the market to afford homes. People are getting priced out. So that's a growing problem. But right now, the demand is just so strong that even if some people are getting priced out of the market, there's still more buyers there ready to take their place. What do we uh, do about this issue of supply? Is there going to be new home construction on the horizon? Are we just kind of stuck in this rut for right now? Is there anything being done to address that? Or, or, or what are people looking forward to at least? So home builders are increasing construction. They're definitely aware of the demands. They want to be building more homes, but they can't necessarily just churn out more homes overnight. And they have some constraints in terms of the availability of land, supply costs, the availability of skilled labor. And so builders are building more, but they are not building necessarily as quickly as everybody wishes that they could. And really the 4 million home deficit, you know, builders are right now pushing their building over, you know, a million starts a year, but that's still to fill a deficit of almost 4 million homes is going to take several years. The other issue is just that a lot of people right now who might normally be listing their homes on the market have been holding off either because of concerns about the virus or because, you know, they are worried about finding a house themselves in this competitive market. So there is some hope that later in the year, more people will list their homes and that will help ease the supply issues somewhat. But really, until the builders catch up with demand, it's going to be a undersupplied market. Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. WHO has said, hey, listen, let's get rid of the numerical names and let's also stop calling them by a geographical designation and we'll just call them alpha. So alpha is because the first, the variant that we were calling the United Kingdom variant was the first one identified. So the first letter of the Greek alphabet is alpha. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Happy to be here. The conversation around COVID-19, or at least how we talk about it, is going to be changing. The WHO has given a new naming scheme to these COVID-19 variants we keep talking about. We're going to be using the Greek alphabet to name them. So we had been talking a lot about this variant that was coming from the United Kingdom. 
That one's now going to be called Alpha and so forth and so on. They're all going to have names slightly changed. It's going to be a little confusing, I think, for a bit until people start catching mm -hmm. on. But Elizabeth, tell us uh, what we're seeing with this. Basically, they want to give a new set of naming conventions to the variants because the problem is that what I, when I'm writing a story, would probably call the United Kingdom variant. A scientist would call the B.1.1.7 variant, which means it is the, the seventh known variant of the B.1.1 family of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So, I mean, all those numbers actually mean something if you're right. a scientist or, a, you know, virologist. For us, they don't. And, you know, the South Africa variant was B.1.617.2. Actually, no, that was the India variant. And what WHO has said, hey, listen, let's get rid of the numerical names and let's also stop calling them by a geographical designation and we'll just call them alpha. So alpha is because the first, the variant that we were calling the United Kingdom variant was the first one identified. So the first letter of the Greek alphabet is alpha. The South African variant was the second. It's beta. And then we'll go gamma, delta, epsilon. You know, a lot of this is to fight stigma as well. You know, when you're labeling it, oh, well, this is coming from India. This is coming from South Africa. This is coming from the United Kingdom. I saw that too as well, you know, when um, former President Trump was calling it the China virus, things like that. And then these variants would come out and the conversation was all, well, isn't that just as bad labeling these variants coming from these countries where they might not have necessarily originated from? It just kind of became more prevalent there. There's two things. One, you don't want anyone to think, oh, anyone from India has this horrible India variant. And we, in fact, don't even know if that variant, which is now Delta, is necessarily more virulent or not. But the other thing that's really important to remember, and um, I was talking to Dr. Monica Gandhi, who's at UCSF, and she reminded me that it's not the SPADA, which was the South Africa variant. It's not necessarily that South Africa is where this mutation occurred. It's merely that South Africa had a pretty robust testing system, a genomic testing system for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and they picked it up first. So the original SARS-CoV-2 virus it's pretty definitive that it originated in China. But all these other ones, I mean, the UK one, who knows where it came from? It could have been in Europe. There are many places it might have originally, the mutation would have occurred, and it's just who had the best testing system. And that's not really fair. But the other concern is, as you said, you don't want to demonize a country, you know, Brazil, India, South Africa. And, and the other concern was that some countries might turn up a variant but not want to talk about it because they'd be concerned that they would then be, you know, named as, oh, you know, this is the Norwegian variant and suddenly people are afraid of people from Norway. Yeah, and so there is a certain amount of racism in this, I have to say, because I was talking to another guy who's in uh, Michigan and he said, you know, it is interesting that people get scared of disease names that come from places that are less well-known, but like norovirus, and I didn't even know this, which is a nasty, it makes you throw up a lot. You get it in the summer and it shows up at camps and stuff. It comes from Norwalk, Ohio. I had no idea. That's, or lacrosse encephalitis virus comes from lacrosse, Wisconsin, and people do not discriminate against people from Wisconsin because of that virus. So there is, there's an element of racism there. Well, there's uh, for now a whole new set of names and uh, variants to learn exactly so you can keep up on the conversation. So <laughs> we'll monitor all of these. Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. 
You're welcome. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.